You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah. Dracul. There's a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. And met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? Vampires do exist. This one we fight, this one we face. He can take on many forms. He is both young and old. He can appear as mist, as vapor, as the fog. And he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. The power of his evil desire has no end. You've got to go to him. You've got to love him. She is a willing recruit and devoted disciple. She is the devil's concubine. Dragon! Join me. In eternal life. Your salvation is his destruction. I want to be what you are. I want to see what you see. I want to love what you love. Take me away from all this death. Make no mistake, he must be stopped. everybody and welcome once again to Geek Fest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today we have a couple of topics that we hope you will enjoy. First up, we have 3D television. Something that I've had for a few years that disappointingly it seems to be going away. We've seen the demise, the rise and fall of so many formats and technologies we had recently talked about laser discs and how they kind of came and went you know and we did a little look back you know way 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 many years after the fact and now we seem to be at the 
precipice of 3D television, a technology that I really was enjoying, and all signs are pointing to it going away. Then, in our collectible segment, we are going to talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula, the merchandising of that film, particularly in the figures or model making <laughs> a portion of it with a movie like that you know the merchandising is kind of limited and you know it is one of my all-time uh, dracula versions that i enjoy the most but with it came some merchandising in the form of figures and i'm going to talk about a little bit about the mcfarland figures they put out and the horizon uh, models that they had put out this is a very long time ago. We're looking at the early 90s here. And then we will wrap things up with the comic book adaptation of Alien, the original film that kind of started the entire franchise, it being put in comic book form, and how that particular comic stands up today. Is it a faithful rendition? Is it a missed opportunity? And we're going to kind of dovetail with this discussion with also Aliens, because it is my other, even more favorite of the Alien franchise films, in terms of, again, comic book. What kind of comic book adaptation does there exist? And how is it different than your normal comic book adaptations? So we are going to be looking at those two comic books on today's show. Now, let's get started with 3D television. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special news bulletin direct via satellite from our on-the-spot task force. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Thank you, Bob. It's Mort. Mort, yes. I am Ted Baxter, and here is the news. For our new segment today, I want to take a look at 3D television and 3D home entertainment on video. This being Blu-ray, obviously, which is the most modern one we have right now in a 3D format. The reason why I decided to pick this particular subject this time around is that usually we wait till something is completely out of the picture before talking about it when it comes to technology. Similar to what I did a uh, retrospective on Laserdiscs. We focused on Star Wars, obviously. But with 3D television, which is something that I currently have one, the fact that we have 3D in a home video format, in a, you know, to be able to watch it at home, is something that did not catch on initially when it was first tried. And by that I mean it was never pushed hard you know, by studios or filmmakers and that is. My first experience with 3D was either some very cheesy movies shown back in the, again now, Depending on my age, if you're older than me, you might have had earlier experiences. I know that a long time ago, even in you know some black and white films, you could uh, watch them in 3D. They give you those funny glasses and you put them on. And they did attempt it, but it was more of a gimmick. It wasn't really something that caught on. For whatever reason, in the 80s, which was the part of my life that I seem to be going back to. And that's when I was in, you know, in my early teens and, you know, to late teens. There was a slight push, if you will, for the 3D technology to return to 
what then would be modern films. Now, granted, for something to catch on, it has to be something good in the first place. So that would explain, I think, why the 80s 3D films that you would watch never really caught on as far as the technology goes. Because partly it's because the technology really hadn't changed much. You're still using those cheesy paper glasses, you know, cardboard glasses. (laughs) And the type of movies you had to pick from were really, really horrific. Now, it was the 80s, and as I've explained many times before, I would watch just about anything. I would go to the movies and see anything. Anything that was either science fiction or somewhat horror-related, I would try to watch, with few exceptions. Let me give you a couple of titles that might come to mind that you might remember. Amityville 3D. Yes, that was a 3D film. Pretty horrible film. Friday the 13th Part 3 was actually part of that wave of, hey, let's do it in 3D. Uh, it, It was part of that popular wave. But again, popular in terms of very bad films. <laughs> Jaws 3D, the third Jaws film. Oh my God, I actually paid good money to see that. It was so, 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 am I making myself clear? So bad. The technology was just so bad. And even with the type of glasses, even when they tried to you know improve on the type of glasses, it just looked awful. And obviously, the 3D effects looked awful, but the film was just even worse. So it didn't, you know, you, you don't have the right combination of technology and content. Because I was huge with uh, sci-fi films, and again, in the early 80s, you had Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin. This is one of those super low-budget, apocalyptic sci-fi films that were completely horrendous. And while we're in that sci-fi topic, you also had Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Another one of these ridiculously bad sci-fi films that are super forgettable, but hey, it's in 3D. Anyway, that's what I remember from the 80s. And every now and then, like I mentioned before, there would be some kind of a television movie that would pop up, usually an old movie, black and white, and you would somehow, you would go somewhere and get those 3D glasses, they would offer them at, uh, I don't know, at the store or something, or a newspaper would have it included, or a magazine, and it would be, this weekend we're showing the blah blah blah, you know, again, some weird old black and white film that you could put on those weird glasses, and watch them, and even though they had improved the glasses for the um, movie presentations, still, they had not perfected it much. So the 80s kind of came and went, and 3D technology went out the window, uh, except one place, and that was when I first started visiting Disney parks. Later in the 90s, I think it was when I first started going to Disney, there were some presentations in some of the Disney parks. Captain EO, for example, had its own 3D type of thing. And I know that Mickey's Filler Magic presentation had very good 3D looking material. They also had uh, Muppet Vision, you know, that whole uh, Muppets in a science lab, you know, you get to show off your 3D effects. Again, now at this time, they're using different type of glasses, and the technology looks really, really good. The effects are really, really what you would imagine a 3D effect would be like. And I remember watching these things and thinking to myself, well, if they can do it for something like this, why can't they do it for an actual good film or, you know, something that's decent but at the time again it hadn't caught on so fast forward to 2009 and you have the arrival of avatar now granted avatar wasn't the first 
of the modern 3D films. There were a few, I think Caroline was one of them. There were a few not blockbustery type of films that had come beforehand. But when Avatar premiered, that's what completely, completely blew everything out of the water. You have, on one hand, a very good film, a blockbuster type of film, and the technology was used so effectively. Again, you could go to some like museum shows where they would have 3D space or 3D this and 3D that. So it's kind of like you're seeing the ingredients of this cake being put together, but nobody's actually mixing the ingredients. So you have the technology is starting to exist. The content has always been there. The question is now, how do you get the you know people to watch it and to want to see it? Well, Avatar is really what brought it home for everybody. Avatar is what really brought it to the movie theaters the way we see it these days. It gave everybody something. For the audience, you have an unbelievable experience of 3D effects. Granted, at first, some of them that tried to replicate the Avatar model came a little short. Sometimes they would try to retroactively convert a film to 3D, a film that wasn't shot in a 3D process. And the results didn't come out as good as the real thing, the original, you know, shooting with 3D cameras. Nowadays, it really doesn't seem to matter much because the technology has gotten even better so that films that are converted to 3D look pretty good, even if they're not shot in 3D. But again, when this technology first was hitting with Avatar, that is what did the trick. That all of a sudden got people interested. Studios got interested. They saw a potential of, hey, guess what? I can start charging more for tickets now. I have a legitimate excuse <laughs> to raise the price of tickets. And unfortunately, that's one of the side effects, not great side effects for consumers anyway, that all of a sudden you go from paying eight or nine bucks for a movie ticket to paying, you know, 12 13 bucks for a movie ticket. Some places you go as high as, you know, 19, 20, 23, 24 dollars, you know, if you combine it then with IMAX or something like that. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. So the studios had something, the audience had something, and filmmakers all of a sudden, like, you know what? Maybe we should give this a shot. And they did, and they tried it, and it kind of still continues to this day. Granted, you know, sometimes. They kind of, at first, started to do some of the cheesy 3D effects where things get thrown directly at you and that sort of thing, which calls attention to itself. So little by little, filmmakers started to kind of say, all right, you know what, it's not a gimmick, so let's not give them gimmicky moves or actions that call attention to themselves and that kind of like a flag waving saying, look, you're watching 3D, ooh, you know. No, they kind of stay with their story and stick to it. The other change that's happened also is that people have, like I said earlier, because of the technology getting better to be able to convert films, they're not necessarily shooting with 3D equipment. They shoot normal digital cameras, you know, obviously not a lot of people use 35 millimeter anymore, and then convert them. So, okay, that works. That, that, that seems to work. Around that time, you know, with the craze of all this happening, you know, avatars blowing people's minds, the next natural progression would be, well, how can we bring this home? And that kind of brought on the home 3D advancement. Not only would they need now a format to be able to be played at home, but just like anything else, well, I need a television that can handle 3D. I need a Blu-ray player that can handle 3D. And I need content. I need content. So that started rolling in. Obviously, as usual with everything, the first ones are a little more expensive, but quickly 
the the 3D feature on a television or a Blu-ray player became almost not an extra in terms of having to pay more money for it. Certain filmmakers also started to take older films and start messing around with, hey, can we convert these older films to 3D? And they did. They tried it and they did. And for a while, they were actually presenting them in movie theaters for limited engagement in 3D, classic films. I know they did it for Jurassic Park. They're about to do it for Terminator 2. I think Predator got a 3D upgrade at one point. So people started doing that. And even Lucasfilm, for Star Wars fans, because, you know, I'm always looking for that Star Wars angle, they, before the announcement that they were going to sell to Disney, you know, part of their plan, their business plan, was to, one by one, start converting their prequel trilogy to 3D and then eventually the original trilogy trilogy to 3D and do some sort of theatrical presentations, I would imagine similar to what they did with the special editions, where they would be able to kind of put out product, you know, into movie theaters, not exactly brand new product, but at least in a new way of watching it. And they were able to do that, you know, the plan started and they were able to do that with Phantom Menace because they wanted to start with number one. We actually were lucky enough to go see Phantom Menace in 3D for that short release that they had. And it was cool because it was also the first time my kids could watch the Phantom Menace in a movie theater. They had never at that point seen an actual Star Wars film in a movie theater. All the stuff we own, you know, we watch at home, obviously. So that was cool. And around that time, obviously, they're always working ahead of time. Are you a genre TV, film, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, toy, and convention nerd? Nerds! 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 Do you enjoy listening to podcasts? It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Do you ever wish you could co-host a podcast? Mom! Take it easy. Lower it. I'm I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. This just might be your chance. Somebody help me! Help me! Shut up! Geekfest Rants is looking for new co-hosts. If you're interested, go to our homepage at geekfestrants.com and click on the hosting icon for more information. Around that time, they were also, they had already pretty much completed Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. And the plan was to start releasing those a little bit at a time. And you do know that eventually, if you put something in the theater, it's going to find its way to your home video market. So we were all looking forward to owning, you know, 3D versions of the Star Wars saga. Because you know we just do not have enough versions of the Star Wars saga. Well, with the Disney announcement, the Disney purchase announcement, all of a sudden, the 3D presentations and the 3D films, everything got put on hold or canceled. But these films were already done, from what I understand, so they were able to show a few of them at certain presentations and certain Star Wars celebration conventions. They were able to show Attack of the Clones, and I think even Revenge of the Sith made it into some kind of presentation at some point. So we do know for a fact that these films have been converted. Not a lot of people have seen them because they've all been, you know, kind of private events for the second two of them. So I have a feeling sooner or later those films are going to show up in a 3D form. The only problem with it is that the popularity of 3D in the home theater setting seems to be kind of waning. The book that I was reading, that I'm still reading, finally reached a chapter having to do with DVDs and Blu-rays and 3D Blu-rays. And they talked about how, over the last couple of years, television manufacturers 
have stopped producing 3D televisions. Now, when I first got my 3D television set, it was kind of by accident in a way, because what had happened was I had a normal, you know, flat screen, large flat screen, high def set, and it was malfunctioning. So I was considering getting a new one. My dad also at the time needed to buy a new set. He was, I think he was actually making the move from tube to HD. And I helped them pick one out, which was an LG model. And in the process of picking it out, I didn't realize that the one we had selected, because I think we bought it online, maybe Best Buy, one of these big chain stores. I hadn't realized at the time that when it arrived, it was a 3D set. It had all the features we wanted, but it was also 3D capable. So it was like, oh, wow, we, we got an extra bonus feature we didn't know we wanted. Obviously, he didn't have a 3D player because he didn't care about that. He still doesn't care about that. But what was interesting that is that at the time, because it was the, the 3D craze, if you will, cable channels, certain cable channels, were offering some kind of 3D content. Premium channels had 3D movies that you could kind of watch. But regular channels also had a couple of like sports-related presentations where you can watch them in 3D. And it was bizarre because it was completely different. Now, granted, the glasses, like I said, are much better now. They're, you know, hard plastic, clear, somewhat clear looking. The technology at the time was kind of fluctuating between these weird battery-powered glasses that would actually flicker like a shutter inside the glass that would create the 3D effect, or a more passive ones where you just put them on and there's no batteries, no flickering, just you put them on and they work. They work really fine for me. I know a lot of people complain that they didn't like the 3D effects in the theater because it gave them headaches and that sort of thing, and it's true, it does. Some people just don't react well to it. Luckily, I did not. I didn't bother me at all. I loved it. But, like I said, he was at least able to watch these sports channels in 3D, which he didn't really didn't care about. Uh, but all of a sudden, I'm looking at it, I'm like, wow, this, this is pretty good. This looks really interesting. So when it was my turn to upgrade my TV, I said, you know what? You know, yes, I do want a, a better, larger you know, H, HD set. And I switched, I think, from LDPs to LEDs or something like that. It was a switch. There was a different type of HD set that I was getting this second time around. Much thinner, much lighter, better picture quality. And I said, you know what? Might as well go for the 3D one because what I've seen looks really good. And all of a sudden, the DVDs were starting to roll out, the Blu-rays. So when I got mine, one of the first purchases I got, I remember I also upgraded my Blu-ray player. And I said, all right, let's do Blu-ray and let's do Blu-ray 3D. Good. So now we had the set. And one of the first films I got was Dread. Because I remember that Dread was released. This is the Judge Dread remake. It was a 3D presentation when they released it. And it was very good from what I understood. I hadn't seen it at the time because I still had the Judge Dread bug stuck on me. That it's like, you know what? This movie's just not good. You know, the Stallone one. But I kept hearing about how much better the second was. So I said, you know what? Let's buy it. Let's watch it as one of my first 3D home, and it was fantastic. The effects were just great. The 3D process was amazing. And I was hooked on that ever since. Well, all of a sudden now, like I was mentioning earlier, I'm reading that because of, I assume, it has to be sales-related. The sales are not just that big in 3D televisions. Little by little, over the last few years, companies have been dropping their 3D television manufacturing. And there were only two left. I think it was Sony and LG. And Sony dropped it. 
And, and now Sony was a different case because I believe Sony also had a 3D capabilities to some of their video game consoles because you could slap a Blu-ray in there, you would do an upgrade to your firmware and all of a sudden they're 3D capable. But LG apparently, January of this year, they announced they stopped manufacturing televisions with 3D capabilities, which is kind of like, oh man, you know, I really love this 3D format and movies are still coming out in 3D. In other words, if you have a movie that was shown in the movie theater in a 3D format, they usually then release it in 3D too. It's not 3D only. Nowadays, some of these Blu-rays, when you buy them, you can buy the DVD only format for people that never upgraded to Blu-ray. Or sometimes you have Blu-ray and DVD included in the same package. And sometimes you have 3D Blu-ray, regular Blu-ray and DVD in the same package. So it's not like you're buying a 3D-only version of a film and that's all that you get. Because at first they were trying to do that. I think at first they were just saying, all right, you want 3D, here's 3D. You want Blu-ray, you got to go over there and buy that one. So that's where we seem to be at right now. We're at a point where movies are still being released in 3D. But I have noticed that it's a little harder to find them. Sometimes the 3D versions will not be available, like let's say at Amazon, for example. Or sometimes the 3D versions are exclusive to one store. Target will have the 3D version, or Best Buy will have the 3D version, or Walmart will have it. So it does seem to be like the 3D content is becoming a little more difficult to find. I don't know if this is the decline and fall of 3D home video. I do not know if this will also lead to films, you know, actual movie theater films backing away from the 3D format. You know, I know, for example, when we saw Prometheus, it was a 3D film. When we saw Covenant, it wasn't a 3D film. So does that mean that actual filmmakers are shying away from 3D? I don't know. I do understand that the studios would probably like to keep it because it's become cheaper and cheaper to convert and not have to necessarily shoot in 3D, and it gives them a reason or an excuse, really, to up the movie ticket, which is something that that's like perfection for them. If they could sell you the same thing for more money, perfect. But in my particular case, I do enjoy the conversions. I do enjoy the effect. And whenever I have a chance to watch a movie, if it is available in 3D, Especially, you know, your big sci-fi horror type of things. You know, I usually go the 3D route. So with that said, Star Wars films <laughs> are in a really unusual spot right now. When The Force Awakens came out, it was 3D. When it was released on home video, it was first released regular Blu-ray and DVD. And then a couple of months later, I think it was like Christmas or the year after or something like that. Then they put out the 3D version of it. But this time around with Rogue One, they didn't do a one-two punch. They put the whole thing out in one shot, which is great for me because I don't have to wait extra time to get the 3D version. But does that also mean that it is another sign of the decline of 3D that they don't even bother anymore to space things out because they know people are only going to buy one? It's possible. For Star Wars fans, it's also frustrating because we know that the prequels are already in 3D mode somewhere. All they have to do is put them out. Don't know if that's part of the maybe long-term strategy. With Lucasfilm, because they had no real content to put out after the prequels, that's one of the things that was going to keep them going, you know, until something new and bigger came up. But now with Disney, because we're getting a movie every year, they don't really have that much of a need for filler. 
They don't need to remind people that there's such thing as Star Wars because every year you're getting Star Wars. So I don't see any kind of an urgency on their behalf to give us, you know, something new. And even more important, the original trilogy. I do not know how far they got, if any, in converting those to 3D. I know that they did tests on certain scenes and they were shown to people as an incentive to, hey, look what we can do. We can take Star Wars and convert it to 3D. But I do not know if they did the entire films and if they're sitting in a vault somewhere ready to be mass produced. The next step when it comes to picture resolutions, as I mentioned on our last episode, is 4K. 4K is what's starting to trickle into the stores now. TVs are showing up with 4K features. DVDs are being uh, sold in 4K format, which, you know, I don't want to call them Blu-ray because they're 4K. They're they're four times better picture resolution than a Blu-ray. And obviously you have your players. I haven't heard yet of any television in that high-end format. And there is no word in sight about 4K 3D because, I mean, that would look amazing if you had a 4K 3D image. But right now... You know, even though no one has announced the end of the content, the end of the, uh, let's say, 3D Blu-rays being sold, at least the televisions have stopped. So what that means is that if you have a 3D set and it breaks down, you don't have much time left to be able to purchase one. There are still models out there, you know, from this year or maybe last year to be sold, but If you wait two, three, four more years, you might be out of luck as far as the technology goes to be able to watch it. And if the TVs start to fall, you know that the players will start to fall next. And then your content, most likely. So we might be at the end of an era when it comes to 3D television. (laughs) So whatever you guys have, enjoy it. Maybe it would be a good time to, you know, buy your last 3D films because pretty soon, maybe we will not have them around. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky. And I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. For today's collectibles or toy segment, I'd like to talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula. The 1992 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola. The specific collectible I'm talking about are the very few either models or, if you want to call them action figures, that came out around that time. The movie itself is one of my favorite modern adaptations of, you know, your classic monster (laughs) from the Universal catalog. Obviously, Dracula might be the biggest one of all, and it's been done so many times before, but this time around, I remember... It was 1992, and what makes this one different than most, I would say, is the fact that by Francis Ford Coppola directing, he chose certain methods to do this film. And one of the things I remember was the fact that he tried to shoot it with as many practical effects as possible 
and transitions as possible, classic transitions, because he wanted to kind of recreate the old-timey film style of the earlier films. And that is something that he kind of weaved through this one. Now, this one is completely packed with superstars of the time. And, I mean, some of these are still superstars. You have Gary Oldman as Dracula, who is just an amazing, amazing actor. You have Anthony Hopkins. You have Keanu Reeves. You have Wynonna Ryder. So, you know, it was a top Hollywood cast in this film. Like I said before, it is probably one of my favorite retellings of the classic Dracula story. With that said, as I said many times before, it is not necessarily my favorite vampire film, but it is my favorite retelling of the origin and the classical, you know, story without having to, you know, bring them to the present and make them interact with, you know, other people. There are different types of vampire stories, if you will, but this is my favorite one. Now, Obviously, a film like this is not, you know, the most merchandisable of all types of films. <laughs> it is a horror film. It's a love story. It's a drama. And it kind of follows that path. So you don't have a lot of um, child <laughs> aspects that you could do. Now, with that said, I couldn't really tell you maybe today when they market a film like this and they merchandise it, would they be able to come up with a full line of action figures? Hard to say, maybe not. Horror is usually not the uh, the best vehicle for, you know, action figures. Nowadays, it's usually superhero action sci-fi and action to a certain extent. Horror is not the type of thing. Now, just like now, back then, you know, horror would find a niche to be able to do some product, you know, manufacturing, and back then, I used to collect the McFarlane, I think it was the Movie Maniacs line, some of them, not all of them, and they actually did put out two figures from this film. One of them is the Dracula creature as a, almost like a, I think it's in its werewolf form, which is really cool. It is standing hunched over, ready to kind of jump on something. And if you guys remember the McFarlings, they're pretty hefty, big-sized figures. And this particular one, the werewolf one, it is heavy. It is a heavy mass of plastic that they manufacture with this. And, you know, it's really... McFarlane, as I've mentioned uh, many times before, they revolutionized the figure industry. They basically created a new category, if you will. It's somewhere between an action figure and a statue or a, a model. It's somewhere in between those two because it's usually bigger than an action figure. It doesn't have as many points of articulation, but the sculpting, it is almost statue bust quality sculpting. Amazing. So yeah, this was one of the two that they put out. And the second one that McFarlane put out was the vampire in its bat form, in its human bat form which is a very scary-looking, reptilian-ish, almost gargoyle-ish-looking thing with these arms that are almost bent to form the bat, you know, arms without them being spread out wide, you know, with actual wings, but just kind of hunched and backed. Also, once again, the sculpting is incredible. And not only is it one of my favorite of the two, but 
it is one of my favorite McFarlane's across the board back when he was doing that massive uh, movie line. Now, these I purchased as a two-pack, both of these together. Now, each of these figures come with their own base, which is really cool because due to their size or their shape, it is sometimes very difficult to have these guys stand on their own. And their weight also sometimes unbalances them, especially with that werewolf one. The werewolf one comes with a somewhat of a generic looking dirt ground base with a rock in the edge and that sort of thing. So you can kind of angle him there and have him stand. The bat one has this incredible base that is a box, a cargo square box that he stands on top of. And that is an excellent box that you could use for other figures if you want, because it is such a beautifully detailed stand and it's very different you know normally you have a flat surface whether it's dirt or a floor or something but the fact that they created an entire prop to put your figure on top and it's cool because it also raises them up higher and i think it kind of matches a little bit in the film there's a scene where he's up high and he's attacking you know that sort of thing now unfortunately they didn't make any more for the McFarlane line, and you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit in terms of what other ones they could have made. Now, the third piece that I own from Dracula is a, a model, a, a vinyl model kit that they put out also, I think, around that time. It must have been 1992-ish. And this is from a company called Horizon, I think it's called. And what they have is, it's a vinyl model that is about, let's say, about a foot tall, and it's of Count Dracula, Vlad at that point, from the beginning of the film, when we see him during the Crusades and he walks into the church and he's wearing this red, red, blood red armor that includes a helmet that looks like the head of a bat, almost the helmet. And the armor is something that I absolutely fell in love with the minute I saw it in the movie, is this, you know, it's a traditional shaped armor in terms of, you know, Middle Ages type of armor, you know, where you have scales and sections and you know different sections however the pattern all over the armor and you'll see it in the, the picture that i'll post is made to look like almost made to look like human muscle like muscle tissue these ribbed stripes that resemble the layers of human muscle and it is a very to me anyway iconic looking armor even the helmet has those lines that make it look you know very menacing that is also one of my favorite parts of the movie and if you guys remember the movie the depiction of the war you know of him fighting during this time at first it's done through what appears to be shadows you see the action taking place in shadow form against a, a screen and then they cut to him walking into the castle, you know, your real action live film, and he is wearing that armor. Now, this piece, like I said, it's about a foot tall, and I remember, now, you got to keep in mind, I'm not an expert model maker. I'm not a particularly, uh, you know, very experienced painter. But because, you know, I knew that this was all entirely red, I was able to kind of put it together. The kit came with alternate headpieces. So when you assemble the model, you could do either the Gary Oldman head, kind of like upper chest, neck, and head display, or you could do the helmeted display. And for 
some reason I had decided that I wanted to do a combination of the two. So I wanted to see his face, but I also wanted him to hold the helmet because the helmet is so cool. But I wanted to see his face too. So what I did was I assembled it, you know, I glued it together using the Gary Oldman head. And then I, I took it, I think I must have taken an X-Acto knife and carved out the helmet from the alternate piece that ha- you know, that also has helmet, neck, you know, part of the top chest area. The, you know, those two are interchangeable, obviously, before making the, the model. There is really no way I think of, I mean, I could have built it both ways and not attached the top so I can interchange the tops depending on how I'm feeling. But at the time, obviously, if I wanted him to hold a helmet, he would be holding the helmet and part of his head too <laughs> and his neck. And his... So I did carve out and I had to carve out the eyes also, you know, the eye socket of the of the helmets. So it looks like an actual helmet. And that's how I have it displayed. I have it displayed with the head holding the helmet in one hand. He does have a sword that, you know, comes with it. There is no base, which is unfortunate because it is a little bit difficult to stand sometimes. But so far, it hasn't fallen down. I had put it away for years. You know, I, I go through these things where I I have my toys out and my collectibles and my models. And then I put them away because I want to display something different. And and I like, I think I'm, I'm, I'm starting to fall into that pattern now where I like to take things out and put things in. And, to, you know, display something for a certain amount of time and then put it back in, you know, in storage. Well, I just recently took out all my uh, Bram Stoker Dracula related collectibles. And... On this particular vinyl uh, model kit line, they had already put out some other ones. I believe they might have put out those other two similar ones we just talked about before, a bat-looking one and a werewolf-looking one. But unfortunately, I think that's kind of where they stopped it all. There were so many other possible ones to do, both in model form and in, you know, McFarlane-sized figures. If I think back at the movie, I imagine the old Dracula the Gary Oldman with the big puffy white hair th- and the red robes that one from you know most of the movie that could have been an excellent one to make him as a contemporary for the i guess 1800s you know wearing those purple and green you know gentleman's outfit with those little glasses he was wearing that could have been one too you could have had also the secondary characters you know the female lee why not a writer character you could have had the witches the witches would have been an interesting one uh ratfield the crazy guy in the mental asylum he could have been another one they could have made um and obviously they didn't make any of the other lead male characters Keanu Reeves character and all those other ones or even Anthony Hopkins Van Helsing's character you know they could have made him but obviously you know these companies are dealing with monsters really and the more the more monstrous ones and yet these are the most monstrous ones but like I said there were a few more they could have gone in that direction a little disappointing the model ones the ones you built yourself if you google these things the displays, the examples of what people have done with them are just incredible. I mean, I've always been fascinated by, you know, model makers and painters and sculptors because they do this unbelievable work. And what's also interesting is that if you go and Google some of these, you will find so many variations of even what I have right here, or of, you know, this foot tall one, other collectors that have either adapted other figures to make them look like this or combine them where they sculpt other pieces you know out of their own you know because they can just do that they're that talented but there's so much other stuff that 
I'm not entirely sure if it's legitimately licensed or it's just fans doing their own work, but you will find so many examples of such, just such great, beautiful looking pieces. As I mentioned before, the movie, uh, I don't want to say it was a hit. It was a mild hit, let's say. The film was nominated for a few Academy Awards, and I know it won for Best Costume Design, which is, I understand that. it, it is The costumes are amazing. And, you know, like I said, that armor design is just fantastic. It also won for sound editing, for makeup. There's a lot of makeup uh, in this film. And the music is also very, very good, even though it didn't win anything for the music. I absolutely love the soundtrack. There's one particular cut. I think it's called The Storm which I've heard that cut being used on future films in, on their trailers, kind of like a uh, temp music type of thing. And yeah, that's another, it's so classical. It is so uh, true to its, uh, to its theme that I, I strongly recommend that soundtrack. The movie was basically a one-shot deal. You know, there weren't any future ones made in that style or, you know, or directed by Coppola. Granted, now, these days, I know we have this resurgence of universal classic monsters. And it had started a while back, but now they're making a bigger deal of it. I mean, I know they did a Dracula movie a couple years ago with Luke Evans, and that was supposed to be the beginning, I think, of the new universal monsters return. But recently, very recently, with, while promoting The Mummy, they were making a bigger deal of it that they are coming back and, you know, they are doing their thing. Now, even after watching the Luke Evans Dracula film, you know, I could appreciate it. I don't love it. Um, I still, you know, consider this one to be my favorite one. It would be interesting how they're going to go forward with all these films. And it sounds to me like they are trying to bring them to a more contemporary setting, meaning our setting, our time frame, and then dipping back and forth. Even the Luke Evans one, towards the end, you got to the point where... I think you jumped to the present, so enough of that past <laughs> type of settings. But I honestly don't know if they are going to, at some point, hit Dracula once again. I know I just read an article that has nothing to do with Universal films, but that Stephen Moffat is going to adapt Dracula for a television series, I guess for the BBC, I imagine. And we just had one a couple years ago, NBC took a shot at Dracula and... I don't think it made it past the first season, if it even got a full season. I don't remember. Which was kind of cool. I, I remember watching it, and it was like, okay, that's interesting. So this is definitely a, a franchise that's never going to... It's everlasting. <laughs> but as far as the uh, collectibles go, I guess it all depends on how you market them. I mean, I don't think I've seen any uh, action figures having to do with some of these films some of these high-ticket films, you know, high-profile films. But, again, one of my biggest regrets is the fact that they never continued with that line. I wish they would have made a few more because they were so good. And especially with a model, a lot of it is you. You have to put, you know, yes, you can assemble it. Yes, you have a sculpt. But then with your painting skills, you can kill or make a model. I don't think I killed mine, but... Mine needs a little more, I need to do some weathering on it. I need to kind of dirty it up a little bit. I'm happy with what I have so far. But this is, again, I painted this thing like 25 years ago. It's been a while. 
I have to uh, jump on them again. And the thing about the vinyl models, you have to remember also is that, and I learned that the hard way a long time ago, is that you need to use special paints for vinyl as opposed to plastic. If you use regular acrylics on vinyl, they might end up feeling sticky and kind of tacky. You need special paints made for painting on vinyl. So that's something also to keep in mind. But for weathering purposes, I might be able to get away with it because I already have a full coat of, you know, that special paint. But like I said, the models are great because they're larger, they're pretty well detailed, but then you have to do your own painting. The McFarlane's, yes, they are smaller, but the artistry of the sculpt and the paint job, these guys are just beautiful. Like I said, they're somewhere between action figure and statues, full-blown statues. I'm not entirely sure if any of the uh, the big companies, the you know, the gentle giants or uh, you know, those kinds ever got involved in in these Bram Stoker Dracula line. Every now and then I might see something resembling that, but it's really hard to tell whether or not it's an individual homemade, you know, artist type of thing. Or sometimes it's an it's a it's a foreign manufacturer. Sometimes they only give the rights to foreign companies and you never really see them here until they stop showing up on eBay somewhere or on some internet database and you're like, wait a minute, I've never seen this before. So I would say if you're into this sort of thing, start Googling them and then jump over to eBay. Hopefully, you know, you can find them cheap these days, especially the McFarlane ones, especially if they're already open, you might be able to save a few bucks. But it is a uh, it a great way to, you know, have uh, some kind of niche collecting. And the only good thing about it is that if you're like me and I can appreciate collecting. I just hate having to get involved in a collection that is huge, that you're going to spend the next 10, 20 years searching for individual pieces. This is very small. Like I said, in the McFarlands, only two pieces. The models, I think there were three total. So if you really, really want to look for them, they might cost you a few bucks, but it's only a few that you have to collect. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. Worst crossover ever. Oh, by the hammer of Thor! Well, what brings you guys here? We're looking for a recommendation about comic books. Oh, well, I recommend you don't open a store and sell them. My spidey sense is tingling. On today's comic book segment, we are going to look at another great movie adaptation. The one we're going to look at today is Alien, the original Alien film. Recently, I did a different movie adaptation, and one of our listeners, Jeffrey Arnold, commented that Alien was another, you know, very good adaptation, and based on his uh, comment, I decided to take a look at it. I own it. I've had it for a while. Now, this particular adaptation that I own was put out by Simon & Schuster under the heavy metal banner, and the reason being that originally this was apparently published in black and white in the heavy metal magazine from a very long time ago. Down the line, they decided to turn it into an actual, you know, book, a complete book in color, you know, to kind of go along with, I guess, the marketing of the film and the promotion of the film, you know, down the line. One interesting little tidbit is that the 
movie adaptation. Now here they called it the illustrated story. I don't know if movie adaptation has a little too much of a marble connotation to it. This is one of the few books, and I think I might own the other one, that is technically edited by Charles Lippincott, you know, our old Star Wars friend that we uh, follow on Facebook and get amazing stories, especially about Star Wars. But he had a role on the making of Alien also, including editing some of these books. Well, this particular version of the story is very, very faithful to the film itself, it follows the story pretty, pretty close. Obviously, it's got to be a bridge somewhat because of the fact that, you know, the, the film itself is over, you know, it's, it's around the two-hour time range and the story on the, in the comic has to be shorter. One unusual thing about it off the bat on this publication is that on the cover, you have the word alien really nice and big. It doesn't seem to follow any fonts having to do with the film or anything like that, but it does have the Nostromo kind of floating in space and these tentacles seem to be grabbing it from the word alien and wrapping itself around the ship which is bizarre because that is absolutely nothing <laughs> to do with the movie if you think about it but it's an unusual choice of cover that they would decide to use off the bat and this is something we're going to talk about a little later the Nostromo looks kind of like a brown orange ship here when in reality in the film it's kind of very gray whitish but that's something we'll deal with a little later. One thing that I found very different when you start, you know, with the story and the way it's being told, and obviously you're you're getting some narrations that you don't get in the movie. In the movie, things happen and you see them happen, but one of the things about comic books is because you're reading, some things have to be narrated to you. In the opening narration of what you're dealing with, you know, the fact that this ship has to stop out of nowhere and take care of a problem, the title inside the the comic, it's all made up of what could be considered Giger type of art that represents the word alien. It's an interesting little thing, no big deal. The story follows, it's pretty, pretty close to everything we've seen before. There are going to be uh, some scenes that kind of come from a deleted perspective, from deleted scenes, and we'll deal with those in a little bit. But one of the things that is different, and it, again, it's part of the narration process, is that the characters, the main characters are all introduced as, you know, as to who they are and what their names are. And, you know, you, you hit them one by one. And one of the things that I noticed really is that some of these characters are so well-drawn their likenesses are very, very close to the real thing, especially Dallas, I would say. Dallas is like right on the money, how good they got his, uh, his likeness. The colors are a little weird. Now, keep in mind, like I said, this was apparently originally released in black and white, and then at some point they decided to you know, repackage and color it. But the coloring is something that is a little bizarre. And I mean, I understand that it's a comic book. So a comic book is almost never going to look exactly like the film. And just by the nature of being a comic book, it will most likely pop more and be brighter and more kind of in your face, which is something that is very, I don't want to say contradictory, but it, it kind of flies against you know the decisions that the director makes and in this particular case you're dealing with Ridley Scott the guy is an artist he is a designer he has an eye for design and when you deviate from his color palette you get something different 
And you do here, you do get something different. Now, granted, a lot of the, the drawings look very good. They're definitely more modern, if you will, than what I would be looking at, let's say, in the mid-70s, as far as comic books go. This has a completely different style, uh, more realistic. And one thing I read is that it does have more of a Mobius kind of feel to it, which is a whole other uh, conversation to have as far as that particular artist's influence on other artists. And the fact that because this movie is so connected to Giger and his style and anything having to do with the alien having a specific look, this is something that kind of carries on to the comic. One thing that I didn't notice until I read this comic is that Brett is described here as Parker's technician, almost as if in order of rank, he works for Parker. He's below Parker. And I really never got that feel when I watched the movie so many times. To me, it almost felt like they were basically on the same level. But here you have this feeling almost like Brett is kind of kissing Parker's butt sometimes and agreeing with him because he's his boss kind of thing, not because he's just another co-worker, you know, bottom of the barrel <laughs> in the chain of command, you know, as far as the, the ranking goes. Another thing that I noticed, and again, it's a style, the drawings, the way the faces are drawn, it reminded me a little bit of Matt Magazine without the humor. Sometimes the artists that Matt uses are very well-drawn likenesses, but, you know, obviously they have to throw in their slapstick humor or the heads are kind of out of proportion with the body sometimes. But I did notice that a lot of times you're looking at these and they're like, wow, these are pretty, pretty close. You know, the, 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 you know, how well these likenesses are made. But for, I don't know, for whatever bizarre reason, it reminds me of Mad Magazine when they do the skits on movies, you know, when they do their takeoffs. That's kind of what sometimes they look like. Now, like I mentioned before, there is a lot more color here and... While it doesn't bother me to the point where it's ruining the story for me, one of the main things about dealing with a Ridley Scott film, especially 70s and 80s Scott films, is his eye. The color palettes that he chooses are so iconic. It's almost like the design of the film is almost a character in the film. And you know, I hate to put it that way. But when you have a comic book version that takes such creative license with color it kind of throws you off a little bit it doesn't give you the same feeling in other words you know when we are in the nostromo everything is light and white and calm you know what i mean and here you know a lot of these interiors are not as white and you know they make them brighter and more colorful so that kind of throws you off a little bit there's a panel here which they're showing you the refinery in space, floating in space. And for some reason, they decided to give that panel a border that is all Giger-ish, kind of like a margin, like an, uh, this huge elaborate margin with Giger-like designs all over it, which is unusual when you think about it. Why would they choose to do that and not anywhere else? What's so important about this scene? I mean, it's a great looking shot of the refinery from top to bottom flying away from you. But... It just doesn't make too much sense as to why they would have chose that one. The way that they pick what narratives to follow and not follow are very good. I mean, you feel like you're listening to the entire movie, even though you're not. You're not getting everything, but so many of the important things are being told and back and forth that, it, you know, you do get a feeling like, wow, this is actually pretty well done. 
you know, that you're hitting all the main points that need to be hit on something this size. Now, when I said earlier that the likenesses are very well done, yes, they are. For the most part, they're very well done. But I would say Parker's likeness is probably the weakest of all of them. And I'm not sure why. I, I'm, I'm going to assume that everybody had the likenesses permission to be used or part of their contracts. I don't know. Maybe with Parker, they had a different situation with the actor, Yafit Kodo. But I don't know. But for some reason, like I said, they kind of miss on his likeness a little bit. And he's a very iconic looking actor. He's not kind of like just another actor. He's very, very different. And you figure that the drawings, you know, their interpretation of him would have been a little closer. Another really fantastic panel, and you don't have a lot of these big double page panels. Probably this might be the only one for all I know, is when they first discover the alien derelict ship. They put it on a two panel spread and it is huge and What's cool is that you have the figures, you have the, the characters in the front, and you can kind of see how big it is compared to the people that are approaching it. That is cool, very cool, and something that you normally don't see, being able to use two pages to do a one-panel you know, rendition. Usually they try to cram so many things into it. There's one shot here where Dallas is finally caught or killed or captured probably captured is a better word by the alien when they're going through all the ducks and what is unusual about that scene is that i don't know if it is for dramatic purposes or it is supposed to be literal but the size of the alien compared to dallas looks so much bigger it looks humongously bigger Again, I don't know if that was a mistake or that's just creative license that they're taking or, like I said, just to, for the shock factor of how much bigger it looks. Now, one of the cool things about this comic is the fact that it has quite a lot of deleted scenes from the film. And this is way before we had the luxury of watching it on Laserdisc when they had the director's cut where they added a ton of extra scenes you know, into the supplemental material. And I think actually into the film itself, they were able to put a few of them. But... For example, there's a scene in the comic where Kane is waking up and makes coffee for everyone. That's something that, you know, again, we didn't get to see that in the original film. The comic book also shows you that when they arrive at the space jockey station, Dallas flicks a switch on the console to stop the beacon so it stops transmitting the message. That's something I don't remember ever seeing before. We also have a scene where Lambert punches Ripley, you know, after she was not trying to let her back into the ship. There was also some chatter having to do with Ash being a last-minute replacement on the ship and Dallas also pointing out that so was Ripley. You know, that's when we're trying to kind of suspect that maybe somebody is not who they say they are kind of thing, you know. In the comic, when the alien kills Brett, he seems to impale him from behind, which is not what happens in the movie. There's also a scene where Ripley asks Lambert if she's ever slept with Ash. Because again, the suspicions are being more and more prominent in terms of what is wrong with Ash. And they both basically say they haven't. <laughs> when Ash comes after Ripley in the comic, he kind of knocks her out, you know, hits her right away. Which is not how it happens in the movie. In the movie, it's a little more gradual how those two start, you know, their fight. Parker also ends up decapitating Ash with like a, a fire extinguisher, I think it is. But in the comic, he's using, I think, one of those cattle prods that they rigged up, you know, to hit him. In the comic, we also have Ripley activating the self-destruct button while Parker and Lambert are still alive. 
as opposed to in the movie that she does it afterwards when there's like no hope left of uh, getting them out. And in the comic, there's also this bizarre little scene where when Ripley's running through the hallways, she finds this box-looking thing that starts to kind of unfold itself and it turns out to be the alien. In the movie, it's different. We don't get that kind of revelation of the alien unfolding itself, you know. It's much different. So there are a couple of more differences, obviously. Uh, You know, they're out on the internet. You can look them up. But those are kind of like the main ones that I noticed. Overall, I really enjoyed this particular adaptation. I've never seen the black and white individual versions. So I'm hopefully one day I can get my hands on those. And again, when you're looking for faithful adaptations, this is great. And the fact that, like I said before, whenever they throw you all these deleted scenes or materials that come from the original script, some scenes might have been shot, some scenes might not have been shot. You know, they're all there for you, which is kind of cool. Now, another adaptation that I want to talk about has to do with the movie Aliens. Now, theoretically, Aliens never had an adaptation because... For whatever reason, they never went that far. And it is bizarre because Aliens was a huge, huge hit. I absolutely love that movie. And you figure this is the type of thing where they would put something out, but they didn't. For some reason, they waited till around 1992, something like six years later after the movie came out, to put together a two-part comic book that theoretically is not a 100% straight movie adaptation and what i mean by that is this is called aliens newt's tale part one and part two and newt is the girl from aliens as we all know but this is basically the aliens story told through her and the story is told from the perspective of her being in the soloco sleeping after the movie ends and she's having nightmares of what basically led her to be there So the story begins with her family living in LV-426 and going out, you know, scavenging for stuff. And her parents, along with her brother and her, you know, running into the derelict ship. This is very, very much what we've seen in the deleted scenes in the director's cut of Aliens, which we're going to talk about one day because it's one of these laser disc purchases that I made when I first got my player. And the fact that they chose to start the story and tell it from her point of view, it's bizarre. Because it sounds almost as if they purposely didn't want to tell you the whole story the way that you normally would from beginning to end, but to pick one particular person's point of view. The art is pretty faithful in terms of the scenes that are being shown. Granted that we are skipping a lot because it's her point of view. So we go from her being, you know, in the planet with her parents to... Her dad getting infected with a face hugger, bringing him in, and a chest buster coming through, and all of a sudden more people are bringing in and infected. Next thing you know, everybody is being herded into another part of the colony, hiding from these creatures that are growing because of this infestation that's taking place. And then we jump to the colonial marines getting there. Now, what's interesting is that even though it's her point of view, there are many, many scenes here where... We are seeing things that she could never have seen. Uh, We are getting perspectives of scenes in the movie that don't necessarily involve her directly, as you would with a normal movie adaptation. So they do kind of do this weird 
you know, changing of gears where it is her point of view and then it's not her point of view and then it is her point of view and then it's not her point of view. There are some scenes sprinkled in there that are not necessarily her direct point of view. Now, you could say, well, maybe she's watching some of these things on a video feed, for example, when the Marines are getting attacked. Eh, maybe you could kind of get away with that. But like I said, there, there seems to be a, a little bit of an inconsistency with that. Now, the art is not as blatantly out of whack as far as the colors go as I think they were with Alien. Aliens was a, had a lot more color, if you will, to a certain extent, but they do take their creative liberties pretty big. The likenesses is one of the biggest disappointments here. They are not very well true to life. Again, I don't know if it's a rights issue. Maybe they don't have the rights for their likenesses, but just the characters. Okay, maybe that's a possibility. That happens sometimes. And another weird thing, especially in the beginning, when we're dealing with kids, there's a lot of scenes in the beginning where the kids are running around the station while, you know, weird things are happening. The kids, for some reasons, the proportions seem out of whack in their bodies, the way that they're drawn. To me, it looked like their heads were too large for their bodies. The adults look kind of good, but the kids look slightly out of whack. I don't know why. As I mentioned before, once we're about, I don't know, a quarter into the story, maybe even less... Boom, we jump into Aliens. It's now Aliens. You're seeing Aliens characters. And the storyline progresses, again, from her, primarily from her point of view. This is one of these bizarre stories where, like I said, I do not understand why they didn't just do a regular movie adaptation. It almost seems as if they couldn't do a regular adaptation. So the only way they can kind of shoehorn one was to try to work the angle of, well, this is Newt's point of view and what happened to her beforehand. But then, like I said, the majority of the story shifts gears to <laughs> the movie. The lines are so accurate. They're super accurate. I think they just grabbed the script and copied lines. And because there are certain instances where it is her point of view, we do miss a lot of very important scenes. You know, we see the aftermath of scenes, but there are certain key scenes that are basically missing, which is kind of weird. But because this is the only one we have for Aliens, you know, we're going to have to live with it. This was also released, I think, around the time where Alien 3 was being pushed out there. And unfortunately, at the end of the story, they chose to end it with, in the movie, you know, we do see Newt and we see Ripley, you know, falling asleep on their cryotubes. But here, we get to see a last final shot of Newt in a cryotube, but we also see what looks definitely like a facehugger approaching her, you know, outside the tube, which I guess it's supposed to be transition to Alien 3. That is the only thing that I really despise about this comic. <laughs> Anything having to do with Alien 3, I am so, you know, turned off by. I wish they would have ended this story just with her going to sleep, but I, again, I think it's because of the fact that the other movie was coming out and they were trying to somehow tie it to that. It's a possibility that's what they were thinking of. So for Alien fans and Aliens fans, these are must-haves. These are two must-have comic books. Like I said, Alien is fantastic. The way that they do it, the way that the story is told, very, you know, I want to call it modern-looking drawings. The second one, Aliens... It's not perfect. It's not exactly how I wanted it to be, but it's pretty good. And the fact that they incorporate so many deleted scenes also, 
And in this case, a lot of them, you will find them in the director's cut. When they put out that laser disc back in 92, I think it was, it was fantastic. All of the extra scenes, the LV-426 before the attack, the sentry guns, extra little conversations here or there, the fate of Burke, him being cocooned, you know, and Ripley giving him a uh, grenade and let him decide his own fate. You know, that was some really cool stuff to be able to see in the comic book. So those are my picks for today's comic book segment. If you're a fan, like I said before, pick them up. You will not be disappointed. All right, well, that brings us to the end of today's show. I hope you guys enjoyed the different topics we discussed. As usual, when we get more information on some of these things, like 3D television, for example, you know, if we do finally get some more information about the future or the eventual end of it, whether 4K will, you know, take the leap into 3D, or have we basically seen the end of it this year with the announcement that they're no longer manufacturing 3D televisions, or does it have a future somewhere? So on behalf of everybody here, we would like to thank you for joining us and we will have future episodes with more collectibles, more toys, more comics, more books, more music, more movies and television, which is the things we love the most. So until next time, we'll see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Are you me? Yeah! Are you me? Nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving in. It ain't us. Get them out of there! like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017.
This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>